This episode is brought to you by the Living by the Indwelling Life of Christ Discipleship Course. This course is all audio, and it comes with a digital workbook, plus two bonus books that you can only get by signing up for the course. The course gives you a practical look at how to apply Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. It is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Yes, but how? How do we practically live by divine life, the life of Christ that indwells us? This is what the course explores. Over 2,000 people from all over the world have taken it. You have it for life, and you take it at your own pace. If you're interested, go to thedeeperjourney.com. That's thedeeperjourney.com. You can check out free samples there also. Hi, Fun Seekers. Welcome to another edition of the Christ is All podcast. Well, I have been made aware that many of you who are listening are going through grade A crises. And so I want to address the issue of trials and tribulations and suffering, saying things about them that I have not previously stated. First, most of our anxiety is the product of our imagination. That's a critical insight to get a hold of. Now, if you're someone who is not going through a present trial, you will. And sometimes it can be so bad that you're facing a fate worse than death. And some of you who have weathered storms may be plunged back into that hell. Again, if you did not pass the test the first time. But uh, you will never be able to convince me on this side of a hot poker that God does not use our trials and our tests. And some of them, he initiates himself. Who was it that sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil? If you don't know the answer to that question, it's pretty easy to find in the Gospels. Who was it that was behind Jesus waiting and delaying when he heard that Lazarus was sick. You will go through the crucible of crisis. The Lord will allow it, but he will seek to leverage it for your gain and for his glory. And uh, those of you who are going through the ringer right now, I want to say a few things to you. First, adversity is often a blessing in disguise, as well as a monumental character builder. Someday, this pain that you're experiencing will be useful to you. Ask yourself, what does this problem make possible? What story would I like to tell one day? What new opportunities have arisen out of this? Some of you have endured and are in the midst of enduring unspeakable trials, the damage being on a biblical scale. Some of you are running on empty, spiritually speaking. Your tank is empty. The earth is hard, the heavens are brass, and God seems to be on vacation. You are simply gobsmacked. But as sure as cats have kittens and dogs have puppies, if you hang on to the Lord and you let go of the outcome and some other things, you will make it through your high-voltage trial. And only until you have been through blood up to the horse's bit will God be able to transform your character in ways that you and the angels have never dreamed. 
A crisis does not change a person on its own. It amplifies who you are. And that's where the changes can be made. Let me add a point. Life is not fair. It is often ruthless and brutal, but it's not fair. It's not fair that I'm not as handsome as Johnny Depp. Perhaps Bruce Willis, but not Johnny. <clears throat> but I have learned to take everything on the highest level possible. That is, taking it as coming from the hand of God. And that makes it safe. If I believed, on the other hand, that God was aloof, that my trial caught him by surprise, that he's not involved in it, then the world is haphazard, random, and I'm living like a practical atheist. But whoever brought my trial, ultimately, I can trust God to bring good out of it. He's very aware, and he is concerned. More so than I am. More so than you are. Now, throughout my life and throughout the trials that I have endured, some of which I describe in terms of the feelings in the book Hang On, Let Go, I stumbled at the goal line many times. But in every case, the Lord Jesus, despite my shortcomings, carried me across. Some of you are going through horrific experiences. You feel like death warmed over. It's a living nightmare. It's a horrible daymare. Someone once said pain is inevitable, but misery is an option. So brace for the storm, and if you're in it, hold the course. Stop and deliberately put every aspect of your adversity into God's hands. Do it every morning. Do it every evening. Allow your sufferings to make room for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're coping with a personal tsunami that is sending you into an emotional spiral, I would like to cauterize the wound and administer some triage. God's grace is not sufficient when you're going through hell on earth until you look back after the dust settles and the smoke clears, then you know but his grace was in fact sufficient. And Jesus will come to you if you hang on to him, even after Lazarus is dead and his body is filling the air with rigor mortis. If you own it, whatever your part in the trial was, and usually we have a part to play somewhere, God can change you. And he is furiously and ruthlessly committed to doing just that. Transformation. 2.0 of yourself. I have said before that a trial is a signpost of God's love for you. You can find this in Hebrews chapter 12. Now my book, Hang On, Let Go, is not biographical. It's short on personal stories, but very strong on principles that apply to every crisis. And I talk about the feelings, the experiences, the struggles that I've had in my own trials. One of the things that you want to avoid at all cost, and this can be etched in glass, is that through your deplorable situations, you do not want to self-implode. This is why it's so vital to get perspective and insight, especially when a trial has blindsided you, where it's as if someone hit the warp drive and you're trying to navigate through the blur. It's like your legs have been cut out from under you. And now your task is to get through the storm without becoming destroyed or embittered by it. But whatever comes into your life with the Lord Jesus Christ by your side is not impenetrable. Right now you are not at ease, which is normal in your situation. You are at dis-ease. And if you put dis-ease together, what do you have? Disease. And many illnesses are caused by a consistent diet of 
dis-ease. So what you have to do, even though you want to wring your hands with anxiety, is to lower your heart rate, to slow your brain down. And this is where breathing comes in. Deep breaths. Slow, steady, deep breaths. In episode 140 of this podcast and in episode 141, I give you more practical handles on how to stop the immediate bleeding and how to get through what you're going through. So if you haven't heard those, I recommend that you listen to them after you hear this episode. You will go through your dark night until it bleeds daylight. And that will happen if you hang on to the Lord and you let go of outcomes. Now, the remainder of this episode will feature some later chapters in the book, Hang On, Let Go. The first part of the book can be downloaded in a PDF file at hangonletgo.com. In this episode, you're going to hear some of the later chapters. Now, many of you already have the book, but because this is an audio format, I encourage you to listen to these sample chapters, especially if you're going through a hardship. And I also want to say that there is a course that goes with this book. And if you really are having a difficult time, I cannot recommend this course enough. It goes way beyond the book. I have a conversation partner and we drill deeply down into the depths of how to practically get through your adversity. It's called Surviving Your Storm. And if you just scroll down to hangonletgo.com, you will see what's in the course and how to get it. All right, here are some sample chapters from the book, Hang On, Let Go. Part two, Hang On, chapter four, the stages of your crisis. Once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure whether the storm is really over, but one thing is certain. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what this storm's all about. Haruki Murakami The word crisis gets thrown around today like a frisbee on the 4th of July. Johnny failed his English exam. He's in a crisis. Face, meet palm. No, he isn't. A crisis is a life-or-death situation. Because of our culture's relentless pursuit of maximum convenience, people tend to catastrophize everything, become outraged about everything, and get offended by everything. A crisis, the way I'm defining it, reveals our level of spiritual maturity by exposing our character before our very eyes. In this chapter, I'm not going to show you how the movie ends. Instead, I'd like to hand you an outline of what you can expect. The rest of the book will fill in the details. Whether your personal disaster is self-inflicted or you are an unsuspecting casualty, the same stages apply. Shock, agony, struggle, and transformation. These are the four stages I've gone through in each of my personal bloodlettings. You will likely pass through each one, too, during your current nightmare. Stage 1. Shock. Calamity strikes and you're devastated and disillusioned. The whole thing comes as a shock to your system. It's like being blindsided by a tractor trailer. The wreckage marks the destruction of your hopes and dreams. Traumatized and bewildered, you can't believe what's happening. Normal life has been upended. You're emotionally numb. This stage usually lasts from two weeks to a month. When your trial begins, it's common to think it will last only a short time. More likely, however, it will go on for much longer. Stage 2. 
agony. There are no words to describe the depth of pain you will experience when the agony stage sets in. It's not just a nightmare, it's also a daymare. During the second and third months of your trial, you'll be thunderstruck with intense bouts of agonized weeping that may overtake you without warning. There is tremendous healing in these tears, which I'll discuss later. Stage 3. Struggle This is where you must learn to adjust to the new normal, which is actually abnormal. During this stage, you begin to adapt to the fresh routines you've built into your life. But even though you get somewhat used to them, you're still restless. When people have serious back injuries, they can't get comfortable, no matter what position they move their bodies into. The same thing happens emotionally during a severe trial. No matter what you do or where you go, your soul can't find rest. When your life has been shattered, you will struggle to grip the wheel of your new strange world. Stage 4. Transformation This is the stage that makes its full appearance when the smoke clears and the clouds lift. Looking back, the crisis was like an earthquake that ripped through your house, wreaking tectonic violence in every room. But you leaned hard on God and rebuilt the house, and now it has greater structural integrity than before. In the various crises I've faced in my life, I learned to lean hard on God when I was at the absolute end of my rope. All I could do was cry out to the Lord and desperately search for answers. And, of course, scream bloody murder before the watchful and caring eye of my Heavenly Father. But I embraced the courage to walk through the center of my anxiety storm, and I yielded to the most transforming ride of my life. As a result, at the end of each trial, I became a new, improved version of myself. Not perfect by any means, but far better. I believe you too can become a version 2.0 of yourself if you hang on and follow the prescriptions in this book. They've certainly worked for me and others I've known. I'm a different human being than I was in the past. One that's more tolerable, more patient, more kind, more considerate, more calm, and more carefree. This is what God wants to do in your life through the ashes of your adversity. In addition, some of the most profound wisdom in my life has come through crises. Paul Bilheimer puts it this way at the beginning of his marvelous book, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. God has dealt with me very sorely during many years of severe discipline, heart-searching, and chastening to show me the truths set forth in this volume. Although it has been agonizingly painful, I would not have missed it at any conceivable cost. My gratitude to God for His faithfulness and patience with me knows no bounds. The greatest regret I have is that I have been so slow a learner. My greatest joy is that God did not give up on me. I could have penned those words myself. Trials, if you don't waste them, can teach you lessons that can't be learned any other way. Chapter 5. The Day of Trouble Sweet are the Uses of Adversity William Shakespeare the adversity you're experiencing right now is what the Bible calls the day of trouble. Unfortunately, it lasts longer than 24 hours. But take heart. This is what God has promised regarding your day of trouble. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Psalm 27, verse 5. Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. 
Psalm 41, verse 1. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 19. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Psalm 50, verse 15. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. During my own days of trouble, I was compelled to cry out to the Lord in the wee hours of the night. See Lamentations chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, Luke chapter 18, verse 7, and Psalm 22, verse 2, Psalm 88, verse 1. Why? Because during my tribulations, I could not sleep. My thoughts and emotions were so turbulent, I couldn't find rest. Even when I managed to shut my eyes and drift off to sleep, I'd wake up at 3 a.m. endlessly playing reruns of the devastating outcomes my feverish mind had conjured up. At such times, I felt lower than a snake's belly in a West Texas canyon. I suspect you could relate to this experience. So use those wee waking hours to cry out to your Lord. He will hear you, even if it feels like your prayers aren't rising past the ceiling fan. He hears, and He will respond. Just hang on. I will wait for better times. Wait till this time of trouble is ended. Job chapter 14, verse 14. Chapter 6. Reacting to hurt the wrong way. The person with a powerful confidence in Christ, the one who is proved by past experience that God is with him in adversity, the one who walks through life's dark valleys without fear, his head held high, is the one who in turn is a tower of strength and a source of inspiration to his companions. Philip Keller Hurt and pain are designed to draw us closer to Jesus. They are also fashioned to make us more like Him, which is God's chief objective in everything He allows into our lives, be they joyful or sorrowful. See Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5, chapter 8 verses 28 and 29, and James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12. The enemy, however, takes advantage of our hurt and pain, trying to deceive us into believing we deserve to please our flesh and get some relief and comfort. A hurt person, then, can turn a deaf ear to the work of God's Spirit and indulge in some unrighteous pleasure, thinking it will soothe the unutterable sorrow. But it never does. Not after the short-term thrill wears off. Consequently, taking the bait is a recipe for misery. It only creates more pain. Hurt people are vulnerable to the voice of the devil. So when you're hurting, don't run from Jesus. Run to Him. Use your pain as an occasion to know Him more intimately, for He is tender toward the hurting and the weak. Take comfort in these words. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, verse 18. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 147, verse 3. Turn to me and have mercy, for I am alone and in deep distress. My problems go from bad to worse. Oh, save me from them all. Feel my pain and see my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Psalm 25, verses 16 through 18. You don't have to give in to temptation. Knowing this fact, strengthened me during my darkest hours, and it can strengthen you as well. Chapter 7. You Need Friends 
In prosperity, our friends know us. In adversity, we know our friends. John Churton Collins True friends show up in our pain. They march with us through the fire. They walk into our crisis. Fake friends walk out. Consequently, whenever you're enduring a monumental trial, it's vital that you don't walk through it alone. I'm not suggesting that God isn't always at your side. He certainly is, but you need the caring presence of other mortals. During the storms of life, you need friends who know God and will stand with you when you lose hope and are tempted to embrace resentment or wrong thinking. During my own trials, my friends were a lifesaver. I'd call or text some of them almost every day. And when I was able, I would sit with them for hours over lunch or dinner, pouring my heart out and listening to their wise counsel. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12 A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Proverbs 17 verse 17 These types of friends are more like your blood kin. Certainly family members you are close to are included in my use of the word friend. Your friends are your brothers and sisters who are born for a time of adversity. Even Jesus needed friends by his side during his blackest hours. Consider Gethsemane. Jesus took his band of twelve disciples to be with him while he prayed, and from the twelve he took three to be closest to him. During his temptations in the wilderness, Jesus wasn't alone either. Though he didn't have any humans with him, the scripture makes plain that he had the animals for his companions. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Mark chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. Notice the word with. The animals were with Jesus, meaning he wasn't alone. Similar to pets in our day, the wild animals provided companionship for the Son of God during His wilderness trial. Point. If the perfect, almighty Son of God needed the comfort of others to walk with Him during His most trying times, how much more do we? Therefore, if you're up against temptations, troubles, or trials, reach out to some friends and humble yourself by telling them what's going on. Just make sure they are true followers of Jesus, because in the day of trouble, you're vulnerable to listen to self-serving lies. That's where the counsel of the ungodly most often leads. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 1, verse 1. Even Christians can offer ungodly counsel. If they aren't familiar with the ways of the Holy Spirit, their default is to think and solve problems just like the world does. But God's ways are sharply different. Divulging your problems to friends can be humbling, especially if you're a leader. During one of my own descents into hell, I was nervous about discussing the details of my trial with some of my friends. But it was through those very adversities that the Lord came roaring over the mountains to break my reliance on self as well as my pride. To my surprise, my friends said that their respect for me increased rather than decreased because I was vulnerable and sought their help. Humility is good for the soul, and it garners favor with God. Never fear that your friends will think badly of you for sharing the details of your troubles. 
Godly people will respect you more when you're transparent with them. They may think, if God can use you as mightily as he has, and I have the same problems you have, there's hope for me too. It's your friends who will bring you to Jesus when you've lost sight of him. Consider the story of the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's go back to the ancient city of Capernaum and imagine the backstory. There is a man who is sick with the palsy. We'll call him Amit. Amit cannot walk. He lives his entire life in bed. He has no job, no wife, and no children. Few are his pleasures, but he has one thing of immense value. Amit has friends. One day, four of Amit's friends hear about a healing prophet named Jesus of Nazareth. Immediately, they hatch a plan to get their bedridden friend to see Jesus. They place Amit on a stretcher and take him to the rented house where Jesus is teaching. They try to get in the door, but it's blocked off. The house is spilling over with people who are listening to the Galilean prophet. There are so many people present that they are wrapped around the house, listening through the open windows. One of Amit's friends looks up at the roof. He then looks at one of his other friends and says, Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Amit's four friends carry him to the top of the roof. They begin tearing away the shingles until they have punctured a hole in the ceiling. Meanwhile, as Jesus is teaching, debris from the ceiling is falling all around him. The sun begins to pierce through the hole above. The people look up to see the cause of all the commotion. Suddenly, four heads pop through. Pointing to Jesus, two of Amit's friends say to the other two, We see him. He's down there. They tear away more shingles until the hole is wide enough to lower Amit's palsy-plagued body down to where Jesus is sitting. The people around Jesus are amazed. The Lord publicly applauds the faith of Amit's four friends, and because of that faith, the faith of trusted friends, Jesus heals Amit and forgives him of his past sins. Herein lies a great principle. Friends can get us to Jesus when we don't have the energy to get to him ourselves. Never underestimate the power of friendship. Will your friends be enough to stop the bleeding? Yes, for a moment, until God steps in to intervene and bring your trial to an end. In the meantime, your friends are necessary for your survival. Aristotle famously said that a friend is a single soul dwelling in two bodies. I don't know about you, but I feel smothered just saying that line. Let me get some air. I like Tim Hansel's definition much better. A friend is someone who understands your past, believes in your future, and accepts you today anyway, just the way you are. Whenever you go through a severe trial, you discover who your real friends are. So I have learned. As the cross loomed, the multitudes forsook Jesus. They do the same thing today. Trouble is friendship's acid test. If you're going through the fire right now, let me pass on a word of encouragement. It's something one of my friends told me near the end of my dark night when my hope was fading. I'm paying it forward. God is creating a masterpiece. You are in a delicate but wondrous place. Giving up is not an option. You're closer now than you've ever been. Rest and recharge. God is at work. Desperation is part of transformation. Don't give the enemy a foothold in your frustration. I'll close this chapter with a fitting story. On September 14, 1923, the great boxer Jack Dempsey 
fought Luis Angel Firpo in New York City. Dempsey was the heavyweight champion and Firpo was a top contender. The fight was witnessed live by 80,000 fans. Near the end of the first round, Firpo struck Dempsey so hard that the champ fell backwards, stumbling out of the ring. It appeared for a moment that the challenger had scored the ultimate knockout. But Dempsey had friends all around the ring. As he sprawled onto the press table, the news reporters at ringside pushed him back into the ring. Once back in the fight, Dempsey came to himself and defeated Firpo. That's what friends do. When you've been knocked head over heels by adversity, they throw you back in the ring and encourage you to keep fighting. Your friends can't fight your battles for you, but they can get you back into the fight. They can't solve your problems, but they can put you in a position where you can rise, steady yourself, and battle on. What you're going through now marks a lonely, miserable period in your life, and it's an impossible journey to weather by yourself. You need friends, faithful ones who have your back and can speak truth and encouragement to you when needed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Never suffer alone. Allow your trusted friends to step in and share some of the emotional burden. Good friends will help you hang on when your hands get weak. Chapter 8. Intimacy with Jesus God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from Himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. C.S. Lewis Let me ask you a question. What's more important to you? that your crisis ends the way you want, or that you become more intimate with Jesus? I asked myself that question countless times during a few of my trials, because God was using hardship to zero in on something in my life that I held as more important than Christ. We can only fully realize how important something is to us when it's in jeopardy of being removed. Reflect on that question, imagining that you must make a choice. What's more important to you? intimacy with Christ, or that your trial ends the way you desire? It's not an easy question to answer. During our trials, Jesus seeks to have greater intimacy with us. But what does that mean? Someone once said that intimacy means, into me, see. Intimacy is seeing deeply into someone and having him or her see into us. It's about revealing our secrets. Of course, Jesus always sees into us. With his piercing eyes of radiant light and unrelenting love, he can see into the very motives of our hearts. When we are intimate with him, we mirror that same characteristic. We become completely open and vulnerable to him. Intimacy with Jesus means talking to him about everything, even those hidden rooms we've tried to keep beyond his reach, those secret dark corners of our soul. Pioneering missionary Frank Lawback, a man of surpassing eloquence and seminal insight, put it this way, Even when we invite him, Jesus, into the main room of our heart, we often keep him out of some hidden little room in the mind cellar where we try to hide sly secrets from him and from the world. This is why we do not feel the sense of his approval and why we lack power. Intimacy involves allowing Jesus to be your best friend. A friend who won't break up with you, disown you, abandon you, or stonewall you. Intimacy means sharing your struggles, your temptations, your doubts, your frustrations, your hurts, your sufferings, and your pain with Him. When you are overwhelmed with intractable emotional pain and hopelessness, sometimes all you can do is weep and cry out, Jesus, 
Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He hears you, and he is near to you. In my distress I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 18, verse 6. Some of these prayers will be guttural, with raw emotion welling up. Sometimes they will rattle your fillings and set your teeth on edge. At other times, you'll groan without words as the Holy Spirit pleads through your vocal cords. So pour your heart out to Him about everything going on in your trial. The feelings, the thoughts, the pain, the suffering, the concerns, the doubts, and the fears. Not just in your mind, but out loud. Do it on your knees. Do it on your face. Do it walking. Do it pacing. Do it standing up. Once you have poured out everything in your heart, be quiet. You may hear the Lord's voice break through your thoughts, or you may hear nothing. Whether God responds as we hope or expect, the Bible is crystal clear that when we are suffering, our first response should be to talk to the Lord about it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James chapter 5, verse 13. Another way to draw close to Christ is through music and song. One tune that I've listened to many times was written and sung by my friend David Ruiz. The song is called Wash Over Me. I once called David and asked him what the words meant and what inspired the song. He confirmed what I had suspected. It was written during a dark time in his life. Here are the lyrics. When the tears are falling and the leaves blow across my mind, when the waves are breaking and the sun is hard to find, wash over me. Wash over me till I can't take any more. Come, wash over me. Wash over me till I can't take any more. When the deep is calling and the waterfall's my home, when I'm all but drowning and I'm treading on my own, cry a silent prayer that comes out of me. It's a mystery. Come, wash over me. Wash over me till I can't take any more. I dream that my voice is heard in the secret place where I bear my face. Come, wash over me. Wash over me till I can't take any more. In episode 51 of the Insurgents podcast, Practical Lessons on Kingdom Living Part 2, I rehearse my conversation with David about the meaning of the lyrics. Trust is at the center of intimacy. We cannot be intimate with someone we don't trust. The greater the trust, the closer our relationship can be. Intimacy with our Lord, then, often takes place in those areas where we must trust Him the most. Our trials are His invitation to draw closer to Him. For this reason, trials are a sign of His love. You see, the Lord is seeking to strip you of everything but Himself. Why? So that your hopes, your joys, your dreams, and your peace will not be found in anything other than God. Thankfully, the Lord has promised to be intimate with you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James chapter 4, verse 8 As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Psalm 73, verse 28 Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. During your trial, he is more than willing to befriend you directly, as well as through your close friends. Chapter 9. The Trial of Your Faith Jesus was formed by his arduous experience in the wilderness 
so we should not be too proud or too surprised when life puts us there. Barbara Russo Peter and James were both well acquainted with the trials that every Christian will face. Peter warned his readers not to think it strange when they fell into various trials. Adversity is par for the course for the true follower of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 and verse 19. Peter also informed us that trials are designed to refine and purify us. They are God's melding instruments, the sieves He uses to purge defiling elements out of our lives. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 Daniel understood the same truth. Many will be purified cleansed and refined by these trials. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10. Note also the word of the Lord through Isaiah. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. James takes it a step further, telling us that in our trials, God seeks to work endurance into us, which is another word for perseverance. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Paul echoed the same, saying, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Strikingly, the New Testament writers exhort us to rejoice in our sufferings. I can tell you from personal experience that trying to rejoice while going through the darkest caverns will break your jaw. It takes an earthquake to remind us to rejoice during such times. For me at least, when I'm struggling, it's easier to make a holy racket than a joyful noise. Nevertheless, in my darkest days I read these texts over and over again and acted on them. I had them marked in my Bible so I could return to them repeatedly. I suggest you do the same. Why? Because they explain the deeper work that God wants to do inside you right now. Though you may not understand the origin of your trial, you can trust in this immutable fact. God seeks to use it for His glory and for your gain. In his remarkable essay, The Pressure of Crisis, Howard Thurman writes, When our tree is rocked by mighty winds, all the limbs that do not have free and easy access to what sustains the trunk are torn away. There is nothing to hold them fast. Given the storm, it is wisdom to know that when it comes, the things that are firmly held by the vitality of the life are apt to remain, chastened but confirmed, while the things that are dead, sterile or lifeless are apt to be torn away. Our adversities are never in vain, and a great reward awaits us if we endure not just in this life, but in the life to come. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
James chapter 1, verse 12. Peter alludes to the same truth when he connects our present sufferings with the future hope that follows this life. So does Paul. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. The transformation we experience in this life goes through the door into the next life. Scripture is clear that if we suffer with Jesus today, we will reign with Him in glory tomorrow. Only eternity will reveal the full splendor of what our trials have produced. That is, if we don't waste them. Resentment and rebellion only waste one's sorrows, whereas humble acceptance and brokenness allow the creation of an eternal weight of glory. If one succumbs to resentment, self-pity, and revenge, he has wasted his sorrow. As Paul expresses it to the Thessalonians, all your tribulations that you endure are so that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Chapter 10 An Outrageous Roller Coaster A man has no more character than he can command in a time of crisis. Ralph W. Sockman a friend of mine once remarked that God often lays out an outrageous roller coaster track for his children. We know where we want the ride to end, but we don't know what the track looks like or how long it will take to arrive at its destination. Throughout my own tribulations, I had no idea what twists and turns, drops and heights, jerking to and fro I would have to endure until the coaster ride ended. But I can tell you from personal experience that some of those turns were preposterous. During your trial, there will be days when it'll seem that the needle is moving in a positive direction. Then suddenly, all hope will vanish, and you'll feel as though you're back to square one. These twists and turns can last for months. For some, they last years. At such times, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 will keep you from absolute destruction. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Here's another lesson. Whenever I caught a glimpse of hope, I was tempted to push the situation to try to bring the trial to a conclusion. But I learned this would always backfire. It's a dangerous thing to be hooked on hopium and try to force a season of testing or adversity to end prematurely. We need to hold our circumstances with a loose hand and cling tightly to God. Consider these words from James. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. James chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Though inwardly you can live by faith and stay in your frame, it's important not to start pressing to speed up a resolution. That's the temptation when the roller coaster stands at a high point. The coaster will end where and when it's supposed to, so you have no reason to fret or fear. Just fasten your seatbelt and hang on tight. Chapter 14 A Way Where There Is No Way The sea, or be it mountains, these are no obstructions to the Lord. He goes through as though they were not there. Yes, God is never at the end of His resources. Heaven always has the answer. T. Austin Sparks Psalm 77 is a remarkable chapter in the Bible. It was written by Asaph, 
the music director during David's reign. From the very opening of the psalm, Asaph is in deep distress. He cries out to God in incredible pain. He describes sleepless nights when he lifts his hands to the Lord in desperate prayer, yet he finds no comfort. Even though he meditates on God and pleads with Him for deliverance, Asaph is profoundly discouraged. He's so full of anxiety that he can't even speak. For Asaph, God has gone AWOL. He believes God's promises no longer stand, and he's full of worry that the Lord is never going to return to his life again. But then something happens. Asaph's perspective shifts as he focuses on the Lord's attributes. I will remember your great deeds, Lord. I will recall the wonders you did in the past. I will think about all that you have done. I will meditate on all your mighty acts. Psalm 77 verses 11 and 12. When Asaph takes his mind off his own troubles, he remembers the great deeds of the Lord. He recalls God's wonders of the past. He begins to meditate on those mighty deeds, particularly the parting of the Red Sea. When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid, and the depths of the sea trembled. You walked through the waves, you crossed the deep sea, but your footprints could not be seen. You led your people like a shepherd, with Moses and Aaron in charge. Psalm 77 verse 16 and verses 19 and 20. What happened? The musician found a new perspective, a new view, and with it he found a renewed trust in his God. At first, Asaph couldn't see a way through his adversity. It was the end for him. There was no solution in sight. Ah, but desperation is God's territory. He dwells in the land of, that's impossible. On the subject of suffering, T. Austin Sparks was encyclopedic. During some of my own personal trials, I sat down at the end of that brother's pen. I read his many works on adversity and found he had already put into words what I was feeling. Of Psalm 77, he writes, The Lord in heaven always has a way when we can see no way, when a way seems an impossible thing. Heaven had the answer to the lockup, to the deadlock, to the impasse. Heaven has the way. Asaph reminded himself that God will make a way when there is no way. And that's exactly what I needed to know, to bank on during my own trial. Hang on to this quote by Corey Ten Boom, who survived the horrors of a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. The wonderful thing about praying is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and enter God's realm where everything is possible. He specializes in the impossible. Nothing is too great for His almighty power. Nothing is too small for His love. Lean hard on those words right now, even though you may see no hopeful end in sight. According to Andrew Murray, the great 19th-century devotional writer, your Christian life is to be a continuous proof that God works impossibilities. Your Christian life is to be a series of impossibilities made possible and actual by God's almighty power. Throughout my Christian life, sometimes I've lived by faith, and other times I've lived by hindsight. In this season of your life, begin living by the hindsight of God's past work in your life and in the lives of others. I was compelled to do that very thing during my own adversities. I made a list of what God had done in my life, kept it close in hand, and regularly reviewed it on a prayer walk or over a cup of coffee. When all was dark and the winds blew strong on me, I would recall the outline of God's hand in my past. 
I could clearly see that the Lord had always taken care of me. I believe the Lord has always taken care of you too. Therefore, you have no reason to doubt His care for you now. Keep hanging on to Him and His promises, even if by your fingernails, no matter what you see, feel, or hear. Healing, restoration, and joy are your future endowment, no matter how your specific situation turns out. Chapter 15 Pleasure and Pain Sometimes the road leads through dark places. Sometimes the darkness is your friend. Bruce Cockburn Many of us have tried to change ourselves by sheer willpower and prayer, but these are not sufficient in themselves. I know because I've tried. I learned a crucial lesson when I discovered that if I feel enough pain and I gain enough insight and desire to become a different person, willpower is no longer needed. Unbearable emotional turbulence gets me to a place where I'm ready to make changes quickly and without apology. I'm no longer pushed by pain to change. Rather, I'm pulled by the pleasure of becoming something different, something better, more confident, more calm, more emphatic, more clear, more Christ-like. In other words, change doesn't happen until it's more uncomfortable to stay where you are than it is to radically adjust. Once you are pulled by the pleasure of growth, growth becomes its own reward. On this score, M. Scott Peck rightly observes, the truth is that our finest moments, more often than not, occur precisely when we are uncomfortable, when we're not feeling happy or fulfilled, when we're struggling and searching. Many Christians cannot get over being mistreated or experiencing pain at the hands of others. That's why there's no resurrection in their lives. So allow the Lord to plant you in the ground. Then something marvelous can eventually sprout. To be sure, you'll drink the bitter edges of the Lord's cup of suffering and you'll be reeling. But in the end, God will gain something permanent in your life. Chapter 16. Just Hang On When one reaches the end of his rope, he should tie a knot in it and hang on. Author Unknown There were times when the problems I faced were so Herculean that there was no solution in sight. I was squeezed into a helpless position. There was nothing I could do to fix the issue. All power had been taken out of my hands. I recall times when I would walk through the door of my home and fall to the floor in disbelief and agony. The only thing I could do was just hang on and pray for a good outcome. That bears repeating. When there is nothing you can do, just hang on. When you don't have an answer, a solution, or a remedy, just hold on. When you have no idea what can be done, when all you know is that you're helpless to resolve the matter, when the outcome is uncertain and it's not in your hands, just hang on. Okay, how? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? You plant your feet firmly on God's promises to redeem, restore, and renew, and you just hang on. Get on your knees, grab the horns of the altar with all your might, and hang on for dear life. Why? because your deliverance is on the other side. I challenge you to make the decision to lean into the wind and say to the unseen realm, I refuse to give up. I will not back down. I will not be moved. I'm going to hang on to God and His word even if it kills me. I will not be shaken. Satan is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you let him, he'll wreak havoc in your life. Scripture exhorts us to do the following. On the one hand, we submit to God, 
but on the other hand, we resist the enemy and his activities. So you come out with all guns blazing against the enemy. At the same time, you get on your face and cry out to God for his intervention. I've come to believe that this is the very posture that the Lord will honor and bless. In the following chapters, I will provide some biblical examples of what it means to hang on when your life is falling apart. Chapter 17 A Wrestling Match with an Angel Just hold on loosely, but don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. 38 Special The Bible tells us that Jacob was a deceiver a first-class manipulator who always seemed to get his way. He was a dreamer and a schemer with keen fix-it skills. However, because of his devious persona, he brought most of his problems on himself. In Genesis chapter 32, we learn that Jacob's brother Esau is on his way to meet him, the same Esau whose birthright Jacob had stolen years before. Jacob is terrified of his brother, convinced that he's coming to kill him. So God puts Jacob in a pinch and begins to pierce his impulse to get things done. While waiting to face Esau, Jacob is alone. Suddenly, an angel of God shows up and begins wrestling with Jacob. In fact, they wrestle all night long. Keep in mind that the angel is far above Jacob's weight class. When day breaks, the angel must leave, but Jacob will not let him go. He keeps hanging on. Jacob says to the angel, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God responds in Jacob's favor. Why? Because Jacob hung on to God and refused to let him go. The angel represents God himself. There are some cardinal principles in this story that apply to you and me. First, God invites us to struggle with him. Wrestling is the most intimate sport, so the struggle is up close and personal. Second, the angel asks Jacob what his name is. The reason is significant. The Lord wanted Jacob to confront his own character. Jacob's name means deceiver or manipulator. God was saying, Jacob, you are the problem. Your deceitful, manipulative nature is your stronghold, and I'm going to break it if you'll just hang on to me. Third, when the wrestling match is over, God gives Jacob a new name, Israel. This signifies that Jacob's identity has changed. He is now version 2.0 of himself. The precise meaning of Israel is unclear, but it's commonly understood to mean one who is triumphant with God or prince with God. The deceiver has become a prince. The manipulator has become victorious with God. What's the point? Simply this. When you see yourself accurately, you are able to change. Jacob went to the mattresses with the living God and survived. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. Fourth, during the struggle, Jacob's hip is touched. The hip is the strongest joint in the human body. The Lord is basically saying, Jacob, I'm going to break you in the strongest part of your life. I'm going to break what you've always relied on, your natural strength. And as a reminder that I've broken you, and that you must never depend on yourself again, you will walk with a limp from here on out. All true kingdom-first seekers walk with a limp. Point. Sometimes our plans, schemes, and strategies are useless in the face of a first-class, grade-A, solid-gold certified trial. Yet, at such times, 
all we can do is hang on to God and refuse to let Him go. This is what Jacob's encounter with the angel of God teaches us. When the smoke finally cleared, God gave Jacob favor with his brother Esau, and they reconciled. That's the miracle that stood on the other side of Jacob's ordeal. In the same way, your miracle stands on the other side of your trial, if you just hang on. Chapter 18 Job's Bitter Pill Hey guys, this is a postscript just before you head out and we part ways. I have created a bundle of free resources. This would include my other podcasts, the YouTube channel, several free ebooks, free seminars, and other free resources. And you can find all of that at frankviola.com. And if you go to frankviola.com, you will see in the top menu a link that says free stuff. You just click on that and you will be taken to the free resources page. Also, a number of you have asked if you could donate to help defray the costs of the podcasts and also to express appreciation for the value that you've been receiving. You're under no obligation to donate. I don't ask for donations, but should you have it on your heart to do so, you can go to frankviola.us. That's frankviola.us. And that will take you to a donate page. There's three different options you can use to donate, all of them simple. Thank you very much, and God bless.